The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So feel free to focus on the issues that were just brought up or related to the nature of an engaged path. But if there are any other issues from any point in the day that are there for you that are more prominent in your mind, feel free to bring those up as well. Really, anything that's really there for you that has some interest in energy. So if we can finish up in the groups and come back to the whole group. So let's take about 10 or 15 minutes, then we'll go to walking meditation and uh, also that'd be the time to use the restrooms. We'll take about 10 or 15 minutes to come back and to really raise any uh, issues or make comments or say where you went with some of the discussion. Anyone like to really kind of open time to um, say where you came from the group? So we'll use the, the mics again. I don't know where the other mics are. Oh. Hello. Okay. This is... okay, so. It doesn't matter. Okay, here we go. Uh, a couple of questions that are related that came up in our group is um, how do. Uh, those of us who have sort of been touched by what you've been saying uh, find other um, socially engaged uh, people out there mm-hmm. in the community um, to take this this work further out there? Um, or how do we go about actually creating um, such a group from, from, from the start? And this is sort of an unrelated question is how does one recognize it he or she is ready to start um, taking this work um, out. Yeah. Yeah, different, different kinds of questions. Um, yeah. We had very similar questions. Uh, yeah. We had very similar questions. Sure. We had very similar questions. Um, or one one major question, which was, how do we how do we make sure that the broader issues that draw us draw our attention are are uh, actual causes to be uh, focused on mm-hmm. rather than distractions? Mm-hmm. And we were also interested in starting a more regular practice. Among practitioners, uh, mm-hmm. to to check in on the efforts that we're engaged in, mm-hmm. and and to make sure that we're more mindful and less distracted. Yeah, yeah. So a whole set of questions there, and probably how many could relate to those questions as being being of interest um, in relation to the question of uh, of how to find like-minded people. A lot of the motivation for the base groups that we formed was the sense that um, many people who had these interests could feel isolated. Sometimes one can be in a traditional sangha and not feel like there's so much room. That's changed a lot in the last 10 or 15 years. I think that 
you know, originally when I was um, had these interests, I sometimes felt quite lonely that I would try to bring spiritual perspectives to the activist groups I was in and wouldn't have much interest. And then I would sometimes try to bring up the more social concerns in the spiritual groups and there wouldn't be so much interest. So it was sometimes rather painful. And some of you, how many have had experiences something like that in different groups? So we felt that it was, there was a need to form groups where like-minded people could come, at least like-minded in the sense of connecting the inner and the outer. And what I didn't mention in terms of talking about um, a socially engaged path of practice was the importance of groups and sangha. Uh, you know, uh, of course, we know that from Buddhist tradition, the centrality of the community, but very really uh, plays can play a very crucial role in all sorts of ways for having a a place to connect to having one's vision or intuitions or sense of practice really uh, supported by others and to to have that vision be be followed. Um, I think there are a number of people in non-Buddhist groups who also have that vision, so one could be supported in those ways. You know, uh, certainly um, some Christian, Jewish, um, probably some Islamic groups, I don't know so much about those, but certainly I know best, you know, something like uh, Michael Lerner's group and Takoon Magazine, where they have that vision. They may not have as developed a sense of inner practice as we ha- have in Buddhist practice, but still they, they have more development in other ways. So, uh, so I think groups can play a really crucial role and it's sometimes not easy, you know, that, uh, you know, it's, again, one of a lot of the reason of forming the groups that I've formed in the training programs is basically to create a sports support structure for people to be making these connections because without that support structure, it's harder to have like-minded people, uh, a small group can go a long way. And maybe, I think someone was suggesting earlier, maybe maybe near the end of this session, we should do a little organizational work, you know, to see what might just form out of here. I don't know if that's practical, but how many would be interested in at least 10 or 15 minutes like that at the end? Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, probably... Forty percent of the group just raised the hand, so I'll, I'll figure out how to do that during the during the walking meditation. Um, so, <clears throat> how to know when one is ready is the, the question. Your your name again? Who was? Yeah, uh, Ryan, Brian. Yeah. Um, to some extent, we're already living socially engaged lives the extent that we have work, are in families, have relationships, talk, and so forth, um, we can be bringing these practices into being. But there's also the question of, how do I know when I want to get further involved? Is that that partly what you were saying, asking? uh, Yeah. I think it would be to um, really be more involved where you're drawn, where you have gifts, where you have competences. Uh, that's usually usually the way it is. You know, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I had. There's a lot that's for me about 
this practice. It's, it's quite important to um, go where one is drawn rather than by some super ego force saying you should go there. And to have some kind of inner intuition to move in a certain direction. You know, it may be that you have a, a vague sense of, my God, global climate change is getting pretty intense, you know, and maybe I should, or at least it's not, maybe not here, but elsewhere. Um, and maybe I should do something, right? There could be something vague like that. So what I found are a few things. I just, you know, that are just practical uh, tips on choices like this. One is that there are definitely cycles of going inside and going outside. And there, you know, one has to really respect those cycles. Sometimes, and we can have, uh, I think I was talking with, uh, can I say your name, Anissa? Yes. Yeah. That we, we were talking earlier, someone with a long time uh, activist background to ask the question and, and feeling drawn towards inner practice and having voices come that were, somewhat um, uh, doubtful. Should I really, isn't it selfish to be doing more of this inner work? And so one has to be careful of when you hear the voices saying this or that, try to discern whether they're more superficial or deeper. And there can be deeper voices that say, now is the time to do more inward work. And I've certainly found in my life there are cycles and there are times more out that I go more outward and times I go more inward. You know, it may be, you know, as one comes to a certain place of maturity, it may be like that person I was talking about, Prop Hassan, who does six months of more inner work and six months of more outer work in a given year. And I wish I could tell, say, if you're interested in that model, sign up here. We have everything lined up and you can just fit into that model very easily. How many would sign up for that? Because you know, he had all his, you know... All his expenses paid. He just did inner work and then outer work. And, you know, it was all... When I first heard that, I said, oh, wow, this is very cool. But, um, you know, the the economics of being a monk are a little different than those from most of us. So, um, so, so to really to um, listen to the deeper voices, to know that there are cycles when it's primarily inner, primarily outer, and that the cycles of primarily inner could be a year, could be two years. And one has to really respect that. If you look at people even like Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, before he really, you know, he had this very intense period of going more inward. Some of you know he then, in the, right in the middle of the, the um, conflict in Vietnam in 1963, 64, he took a graduate fellowship to go study at Columbia University. Okay, so deep proponent of engaged Buddhism, right? So there was something that was, uh, you know, in that process, he also talked about Vietnam and did writing. But, um, and then he, then he came back, right? So there, there are these cycles. And later, when he was unsure what to do, he did five years, which was primarily inner, from, I think, 1977 to 82. And then he had a more outward cycle, in which he came to the West, taught widely for the first time, had a huge impact, right? That came out of a period of five years of going more inward. And you can find that in the lives of many people. Um, There's something about renewal that involves continual cycles of going inside and going outside. You find that in the lives of so many people. 
You know, very, very important to have those periods of renewal. So that that's that's crucial. And then the other piece is just knowing, you know, what I found very helpful are, are a few things. <coughs> One is that I was very influenced by Joanna Macy saying that in the process of transformation, there are a number of different aspects to that transformation. One is that part of the process of transformation is preventing further bad things from happening. A lot of traditional activism fits in that category, basically stopping what people think are bad things from happening. Very significant, right? And yet incomplete. Because she said a second aspect is transforming the basic institutions. So that might be that might mean changing the medical system, changing the educational system, developing new forms of psychology, and so forth. And that's also very crucial. Uh, again, maybe by itself uh, could be incomplete. And then the third aspect is changing the very nature of our perceptions and consciousness. And that might be teaching meditation or teaching yoga. And I think what I've got out of that is that all three of those aspects are really crucial. We need all three of them. Everyone can't do all three in some full way, right? So, but what I, what I found important for people is that you have to know where you're drawn, where your gifts are, where you feel called, and to have the connections between those three realms. That's what I really find crucial. It's really a version of connecting the individual, the relational, and the collective. Like how can I, if I'm primarily interested in transforming the medical system, how can I see that as related to changes in consciousness, to changes in perception? How can I see that related as to also stopping the worst of the abuses or or preventing further harm? Or I was thinking, if I'm a yoga teacher, I'm really drawn to being a yoga teacher. And I might think, oh my God, the world's falling apart. I'm a yoga teacher. You know. And one could be critical, self-critical in that way. But let's suppose the, the gifts are there, what really is called, it's incredibly nourishing, and one's good at it, and so forth. But what would it be to teach yoga and to be aware of the other two realms as well? Might be to teach it in a different way. Might be to teach it so that one's aware of the cultural and institutional ways that body images get formed. Right? And you might teach yoga as a way not just to become more limber, but actually to liberate the body and to connect it with the uh, understanding that it is related to the institutional and the cultural issues. Again, yoga is not usually taught like that, so it's a, a vision or to connect it to what's happening on the, uh, in terms of, let's say, the earth body. You know, you could ima- I could imagine someone, and I mean, I, I think like this, who really has a broad view of what transformation of the body is and understands maybe the connection to the earth body. And what would you what would it look like if you taught yoga from that broad perspective? You'd still be teaching yoga, 
but it'd be a deeper vision. And so you'd have a sense of, oh yes, this is, basically we're connected. Because what I find when I've taught, for example, with activists, most of them feel like this, every, everything's kind of disconnected, you know, and they don't connect the different parts. So a lot of what is being encouraged here are those connections and those integrations so that we you know, so that we do what we're called to do, but what would it be like to see it in a much wider perspective? Which partly means that we need ways to do that. You know, if I'm a yoga teacher, I might need to study more about what are the body images and how are those related to all sorts of things, right? You know, I mean, some of you probably explore that, but you know, if I'm looking at body images and sense of body, you know, I might want to be subversive some and say, you know, we're not doing yoga, so you can just have the traditional gender models and go out there and look glorious or something, right? That could be, but one can teach yoga in that very conventional way, right? Yeah. Did you have something, Tess? No. Okay. Okay, please. Um, you pass the mic. Uh, what was the first of the three? She calls it holding actions to prevent further damage. That's what that's what Joanna's phrase is. And the second is changing, transforming the institutions, and the third is shifting perceptions. It's a very simple model, but you can see that it's pointing to these different areas. And again, what I found in both um, talking, talk, really talking with most people, is that we don't make the connections. We don't see ourselves as connected. If I'm a yoga teacher, I feel guilty because I'm not acting, but I don't see myself as connecting. Or if I'm an activist, I think that I don't see how my work is connected with these other dimensions. And that, that becomes a short shortcoming. You know, even when we think about something like uh, nonviolence, we think about Gandhi, right at the center of Gandhi's work was what he called the constructive program. Some of you may know, which was to transform the whole economic structure. It wasn't just, wasn't just negative to get rid of, you know, the English and so forth, you know. Maybe one or two more thoughts or questions, reflections. Okay, so. Uh, in our group, the issue came up about how we don't have to Thank you. Is that better? Okay. Since we don't have, as, as people mentioned, other groups around, that maybe we could, uh, what do we go on bait? Where has it worked for us? Where have we actually seen something? work for us. And uh, I mentioned, for instance, I was in mediation practice where you can get people at total conflict at a table, sit them down, yeah. and you start going down and saying, now, why, why are you here? What is your issue? And he says, oh, it's 500 bucks. I want my 500 bucks, and so on. So they're very specific. Yeah. It hits their emotions, and what we talked about was that's the, actual, it's the emotion, the mirror neurons, which are not getting connected. Until you, when you're trained in mediation, you can go down that list, get everybody to report out what are they feeling and feelings again, until finally you can get down to and what's behind that. So what does the $500 mean to you? Oh well, I just uh, I'm really poor right now and I I really can't afford that. And that well, and then you can get it more and more to the emotion, the basic, and finally you can actually say, well, 
can you hear the other guy? They're hearing the other guy, and finally they come out in two hours with a resolution, which is just magic. Yeah. But, but it's, a, it's a process of getting through that layering. And so people mentioned the, uh, my, the mirror neurons to respect uh, the mirror neurons, and you get down to compassion. One thing that uh, this gentleman su- suggested was having photos of the other people and the situation, like if they're hungry or something else like this, could create the compassion whereby you can start talking about the deeper levels and, and get, get to that. Mm-hmm. This, by, this is not, um, well, anyway, it's, it's, anyway, that's about it. I must stop. Yeah, no, that's, I think what, to me, what that's really pointing to is that um, the application of meditative techniques and general principles of interdependence and compassion and so forth can be are being brought into so many different uh, venues in our society and connected with um, what we you know we might call general somewhat mainstream western approaches mediation would be one of those Medi- you know someone else mentioned law that um, what and I, and I I've been um, actually teaching the last few years, but developing trainings on on bringing meditative approaches to working with conflict. And in all of these areas, there can be uh, there can be a very beautiful sense of how the meditative approaches brought can be brought into those areas where they can really uh, work quite dramatically, just you know in a very simple way people can learn how to be with difficult emotions. You know, the, you know, the heart of a lot of conflict is that we have really uh, difficult emotions, anger, sadness, fear, whatever, and we become reactive. I mean, it's pretty, pretty simple. And that people don't know what to do. And in, the, in, that, in that kind of reactivity, we drop empathy, we become self-centered, you know, in a way think that our survival is at stake. And that one can work with the, one can work with those conditions, and you know a skillful person can help set up a situation using those approaches to really um, basically ease the suffering. And, yeah. and just listening, yeah, to, to learn how to listen and and understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, as Sean knows, I gave a talk on listening last night, <laughs> so. Uh, it's kind of when you were saying that. I said, "Oh, <laughs> uh, I think I remember remember that." Um, but the um, so this this would be part of what we could talk about as the path of engaged practice. Part of it involves a lot of creativity. It's to bring you know probably each of your areas. You know, this is part of what community does. You could probably more creatively bring your meditative understanding into that setting. And of course, when you collaborate with others, you know, like among lawyers or people in the medical field or psychologists, it can be quite wonderful. And then one can say, how can I take, let's suppose I'm a mediator, how can I take that as a practice? And really, you know, or you know, in the medical field, how can I take this as a practice? Getting back to Kim's question, maybe I'll, I'll finish with this, how does liberation occur? Or how do I 
you know, we can talk in a simple way. How do I see where I'm stuck or where there's greed, hatred, or confusion? How do I see it and work through it? And how do I do that in these settings? I think that's ultimately part of what we mean by, by moving towards liberation. In other words, how can, how can our engagement in the world be a path of development and learning? We could say it very simply like that. You know, with the learning, particularly be the learning that helps us be less self-centered, more compassionate, more aware, more wise, and so forth. You know, and what does it look like when I start framing my work in the world in those ways? And how can I really look for, where am I, where am I really learning? And then what supports my learning? And then, you know, this is where the groups can come in, uh, teachings and so forth. And I, again, I think, uh, you know, sometimes it really requires that's those small groups for people to talk to, to even bring it up. It's sometimes quite hard to do this on one's own. But this is really what we're pointing to. How can my, how can my everyday action in the world be a place of learning? That's what we mean by a path of practice. How can it be a place of learning and not learning of facts and not learning of information, but a learning of how to be more free, how to be more compassionate, how to be more present. And that's, that's really what we're pointing to in this, you know, really with the whole day, but in this particular section particularly. And then what teachings and practices help me do that? What supports help me to, to do that? If I'm a mediator, a lawyer, a yoga teacher, uh, uh, whatever. You know, working in, working in an office, um, being an assistant, uh, and so forth. Yeah. So we'll let, um, we'll let this marinate. We'll let, we'll let this, these themes marinate. And we'll, we'll go now to about uh, 15 minutes of walking. And we'll come back, uh, we'll ring a bell. Uh, we'll come back for the last section, which is uh, we'll be partly on looking at some core issues in engaged Buddhism, but I also also want to hear. Maybe I'll start with hearing the kind of unresolved issues or core questions that the group has, and kind of list those, and then choose kind of choose where to go. I have a few basic issues I have, but I want to hear yours. So we'll so about 15 minutes, and then we'll we'll ring some bells, and we'll come back for a short sitting, and then our last uh, block. Thanks. <laughs>